Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the Digital Markets Act and at its potential implications on artificial intelligence. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active Stack Brief podcast. Today's edition is powered by Mozilla. Mozilla's Internet Health Report dives into the use of artificial intelligence in surveillance, labor, healthcare, geospatial data, and disinformation in social media. Also, it's a podcast. Hear from the people shaping a more equitable AI future. Go to 2022.internethealthreport.org. Today, I'm joined by Professor Philip Hacker, Chair for Law and Ethics of the Digital Society at the European New School of Digital Studies. Hello, Philip. Hi, Luca. Thanks for taking me. Great to be here. And great to have you. So in a recent paper, uh, you have argued that the most far-reaching EU rules on artificial intelligence are not contained in the AI Act, but in the recently adopted Digital Markets Act. Could you elaborate on this argument? I think we all know that um, many of the most important AI applications are actually deployed in the digital economy. So there's obviously also AI in administration, law enforcement, but much less. So quantitatively and economically speaking, I think the most important deployments really are in commerce. And now when we think about the digital economy, what's salient there is, of course, platforms like big tech, right? Uh, Amazon, Google, Meta. And these platforms essentially are about matching parties. And how do they do that? Well, on the platforms, we find uh, two big AI applications that are sometimes overlooked a little bit. And the first one is uh, matching users with content. So that's about ranking offers, right? If I, if I query, for example, climbing shoes, I really like climbing. So if I query climbing shoes on Amazon, I get a ranking. Uh, of shoes, and that ranking is established by a complex AI system. And uh, similarly, when we talk about uh, a second matching operation, namely matching me, for example, the user, with advertisers, uh, you know that uh, when I Google climbing shoes, uh, I will also receive ads, right? And these ads are are constructed by a real-time bidding, and that often involves ML uh, machine learning as well. And so AI is really at the core of the digital economy in the GAFAM um, uh, platforms. But unfortunately, uh, the AI Act totally overlooks that and does simply not apply, at least not the main regulations and and obligations in Article 6 for high-risk applications, uh, because e-commerce does not qualify as high-risk. So AI used by, say, Google or Meta or Amazon is, is just only regulated by the DMA but not, at least in general, by the AI Act. And hence, I guess the AI Act is missing out on some of the most important applications that we have in AI. Right. So um, do you think that uh, this uh, relatively commercial aspect was overlooked in the AI Act because there was a bit of a misconception uh, from from European policymakers? Or also, could you not argue that at the moment, uh, these ranking algorithms 
are the most uh, economically relevant uh, applications for AI. But uh, this is a technology that is still um, rapidly evolving. So maybe in the future we could have, um, you know, uh, different types of algorithms that have a much uh, heavier economic impact. Well, to take the second half of your question first, well, yes, of course, uh, nobody can guarantee that, that there isn't something else that's coming up. Uh, right now, uh, we were witnessing with chat GDP and all these other large generative models, kind of a new generation of AI tools as being unleashed that might actually uh, replace uh, Google, at least as we know it, as a search engine. And uh, interestingly enough, there is in the AI Act, and there is, if they want to, include rules on general purpose AI systems, right? And this is one of the most controversial aspects of the whole uh, AI Act because these foundation models or uh, general purpose models, um, they, uh, in the general approach, at least uh, by the EU Council, they're supposed to be covered if they can somehow be used for um, high risk applications. But the problem is, that that places a super heavy burden on everybody who's developing these uh, very potent new models like ChatGDP, um, because of course they can be used for a million things, and one of them might be you know a high risk application like resume screening or something like this in employment. So here I guess uh, we have a case where the AI Act does cover a new and potentially highly economically relevant AI advancement but in a way that complicates the matter quite seriously because um, it's, it's very difficult to, uh, for example, establish a risk management system for these, uh, for uh, general purpose or foundation models. And in the end, I think, or the risk is that only big tech will be able to afford, you know, uh, compliance with the AI Act rules if they really apply as foreseen to uh, GPAIS. And that might lead to a further concentration of the market, um, which then interestingly has these repercussions that really should be dealt with in the DMA. And um, I guess my solution would be to say, with respect to foundation models or GPAIS, um, to only have them recognized as high-risk systems if and when they are really used as such. Uh, on the other hand, um, I could think that, yeah, when the when the DMA and the AI were drafted, I mean, I didn't draft them, but that the legislators were perhaps uh, lacking a bit in coordination uh, because we have these different discourses, right? We have a discourse around platform regulation, discourse about AI regulation. They're two separate at the moment, I think. And so people thought, well, AI Act, that's about AI regulation. DMA is about platform regulation. And perhaps there was not enough, you know, information interchange because people tended to overlook that the AI is really, at the moment at least, the technology that's that's uh, driving platform applications, and um, that's perhaps one of the reasons why there is uh, this kind of mismatch between the coverage of the AI Act and and the DMA with respect to AI applications in the economy. Uh, indeed, the relation between the AI Act and, and the DMA uh, was really not uh, prominent uh, in, in Brussels. Um, but uh, following up on your criticism on the AI Act, you, in your paper, you also point to this controversial list of high-risk AI applications. So... Uh, 
I think you already hinted at this, but how how could this uh, list uh, be changed to better cover um, uh, the algorithms uh, used by big tech? I'm not saying that all the algorithms that are used by big tech should be regulated as high-risk um, applications. We really have to look at what specifically is being done. And um, I've, I'm just going to give you a few examples of where I think it would merit to have uh, applications under high-risk settings that are not yet considered to be so. For example, emotion recognition, because that's just very privacy-intrusive. Um, insurance, which is only partially covered right now, but it's very important, of course, for many consumers. Um, also, autonomous vehicles, which quite paradoxically at the moment are excluded or not under, uh, at least do not fall under the high-risk obligations. And um, I think this points to a more general and important uh, question, namely whether the essentially binary nature of the AIX, so either something is high risk or it's not, um, whether that does not miss the complexity of AI applications. And I, in fact, I think it does. So um, the, the fact that we don't have any actual regulation for non-high risk AI systems is entirely wrong in my view. So it, what I think it, what we need is more granularity kind of. So we, for example, when we talk about um, data governance rules, data governance rules, Article 10 AI Act, um, those could, at least in the minimal form, also apply to non-high risk systems because, I mean, you want to have good data. Um, on the other hand, uh, you could say that, uh, for example, environmental sustainability, which is a, a crucial target, uh, not only for AI, but I mean, for, for the future of mankind, um, is totally overlooked. And there it wouldn't matter at all whether, you know, our climate is changed by the uh, emissions of high or non-high risk AI systems. And this is something that I will uh, continue to work on in, in future research. Uh, so I think that, yes, some areas uh, would really benefit from a more nuanced perspective, Whilst, on the other hand, as I said, I, uh, with respect to these foundation models, um, chat GDP, large generative models, I think we would need also a more nuanced approach, but to the extent that perhaps we, we do not subject them generally to the high-risk uh, rules, but only when and if they are really used for that purpose. Um, so that would be kind of my 50 cents on that. Uh, at the at the core of your interpretation on this potentially influential role of the DMA uh, in reshaping uh, big tech's algorithms is this concept of fairness uh, that has been included in the in the DMA, in particular for what concerns the front criteria. So, uh, ca can you explain what are the implications of of these front criteria for uh, algorithms such as the one you mentioned before? Yeah, I think there's there's quite a lot of work to be done still, uh, both with respect to the law and to the tech side. So the specific rule is Article 6.5 of the DMA, which uh, says uh, that ramp rankings must be fair and non-discriminatory in Geralia. And so in our paper, and this, uh, by the way, is joint work with uh, Johan Cordes and Janina Rohan, um, we try to show that this reiterates and refers to implicitly the so-called FRAND criteria. What's FRAND? FRAND means a fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory, and it's a term that's being used at the intersection of competition and, and IP law. So if you have a standard essential patent, uh, for example, for 
fabricating some kind of medicine or something like this, um, then you might be under an obligation as a patent holder to give out uh, licenses in a friend way. So if you give a license to company A and then comes along company B, which is very similar, you cannot say, well, I'm not giving the license or I'm giving it only for 10 times the price. But you need to treat similar cases similarly. And so we take that idea, which, which is very central to uh, general competition law approach, and say, well, in the DMA, when it now talks about fairness for the first time, um, that cannot mean, and non-discrimination, sorry, also, non, fairness and non-discrimination cannot mean basically what it used to mean in non-discrimination law, in traditional non-discrimination law. Why? Well, if we go back to the climbing shoe example, uh, we have this climbing shoe ranking, uh, but climbing shoes, of course, do not have any kind of ethnic origin, for example. So if you want to say the ranking needs to be non-discriminatory, um, we need different. We need to look at different attributes because the non-discrimination attributes that we know, like uh, gender and so on and so forth, um, they're geared towards humans. I mean, they're human attributes, but not product attributes as we would need them for for the DMA. And so we adapt the Frank criterion, and we say that what it means to be fair in a friend or in a DMA sense really is to. Um, to, to be able to justify objectively differentiations between different products. So the ranking itself needs to be justified, not in a way that's written down in the ranking or in the algorithm for that matter, but AI developers and companies must be somehow in a position and prepared to answer the question of why is that shoe shown above the other one, right? And is that reason a good one? So for example, if, you know, if that shoe is at the head of the list because it better fits my shoe size or whatever, or my climbing habits as entered in a previous purchase of mine, well, that's a good reason. Uh, but if it's on the top of the list because it's affiliated, the company that's selling it is affiliated with the gatekeeper or if it uses the gatekeeper uh, logistics channels, if that's the main reason, then that'll be a violation of the DMA. And obviously this, this uh, is closely connected to the whole uh, landscape of competition law cases that we've seen with the Amazon Buy Box case, which, for example, was settled just on December 20 uh, of last year, 2022, uh, with the commission, and which is a gigantic case uh, that, that was uh, moving along at the commission. So all in, there's a lot of compliance issues there for companies who need to document their choices and test their models in order to be able to answer these questions if they come up. Uh, in, in an investigation. And uh, in this regard, you have also worked on another paper uh, where you have built an algorithm that sort of operationalizes these uh, DMA fairness requirements for uh, machine learning systems. Could you explain how, how that would work in practice? Yeah, sure. Um, so for that paper, uh, I, I was happy uh, to team up with uh, math professor Emil Wiedemann and Zalando's uh, algorithmic fairness team. So the lead author of the paper is Mike Zielicke, credit where credit is due, right? Um, so uh, we look at rankings more specifically there. And there are problems, of course, in any ranking. Uh, you have false positives and false negatives and False positive means that uh, an item is at the top of the list or very high on the list that shouldn't be there because it's actually not relevant. And false negative would be that an item is very low that should actually be uh, 
more up in the list. And so those are two things uh, that are problematic. And then you also want the ranking itself in general, you want it to be, uh, as, as machine learners say, you want it to be well calibrated so it, uh, that it does actually what it pretends to do. So if something has a high score, for example, that's really in reality, it, it, it functions well, let's say. And the problem now in fairness literature is that you can't have your cake and eat it too. So if you have a certain ranking under reasonable, basically all realistic circumstances, you cannot fulfill all of these fairness requirements of balancing false positives, balancing false negatives, and get great calibration. It's just mathematically impossible. It's very easy to prove. It was proven in 2017 by John Kleinberg and his team and others at the same time. And now our algorithm comes along and says, well, if we cannot maximize all of these fairness constraints, at least we can fulfill them partially to a degree that can be chosen by the decision maker. So say, for example, you want to have a ranking where you think you know, false positives are particularly uh, uh, important or you want to avoid them, um, then you could choose 60% false positive uh, control, let's say, and 30% false negative control and 10% calibration control. And you could choose anything uh, so just that it ha adds up to 100%. And how does that relate to the DMA? Well, um, if the wrong product is up in the ranking, so it's a false positive, um, then as the, uh, as the company, you won't have a justification for having that product at the top, right? Again, coming back to the climbing shoe, you know, if it's up there um, and it's a false positive because only because it's using prime logistics channel, but not because it fits my shoe size, well, that's a problem. And, and uh, worse so, for example, if it's high up on the list because it comes from an incumbent company, a well-known company, a well-known brand, but not um, from, uh, from a newcomer. And that's a real problem in rankings and e-commerce where newcomers often have a hard time establishing themselves under what's often called popularity-based rankings. And that might be considered a problem, um, a fairness problem under the DMA. And particularly when you have really, when you have products up there that, that are clearly false positive. And so now our algorithm may take care of that by balancing the false positives, so the unduly promoted products, uh, versus the false negatives, so the unduly demoted products, and that might contribute to AI compliance and practice, uh, at least we hope. And uh, on a final note, I, I, we also think that this is really an interesting domain of emerging research on algorithmic fairness that goes beyond traditional non-discrimination law. So uh, there is important papers out there already, you know, by Sandra Wachta, who wrote on affinity profiling um, by Facebook and others, and and Sandra and Frederick Zudervin Borgesius, they, they wrote on expanding the protected groups in non-discrimination law because now we have AI coming in and you know it's not only uh, gender and sexual orientation and you name it, but all kinds of cross-cutting categories. And we try to expand that non-discrimination field as well by kind of bridging competition law and non-discrimination law with respect to um, products uh, that are ranked in the digital economy by gatekeepers. And uh, we hope that that could be a fruitful conversation to have going forward with policymakers, but also with researchers, both, both from a tech and, and a law background.
Thanks, Philip. I think that's a very interesting uh, proposal at a time when many people are trying to figure out how to apply the DMA in practice. Um, but a uh, final uh, point I want to, to touch upon with you is the relationship between the DMA and the GDPR, because you also mentioned that the DMA might be highly influential in the field of data protection. So could you please expand on that? The relationship is, is really complex. And I would say, um, on the one hand, there is a important uh, research already by Damien Jardin and, and colleagues on GDPR myopia. So the GDPR, because it has these heavy regulatory uh, costs, tends to lead to a concentration in the market because many small players can simply not afford to do it. And there could be a similar effect with respect to the AI Act. And so the, it's important to always to consider then the competition effects of the AI Act. And uh, what's needed then probably is sometimes more flexible or lenient rules for SMEs, for example. And that's foreseen in some areas of the AI Act, but not in others. Um, and on the other hand, I think we should try to harmonize also the enforcement of the AI Act and the DMA, because uh, Actually, the, the enforcement authorities are going to be looking at similar things. You know, they're going to be auditing the models for, say, discrimination. They're going to be looking at data structures, uh, how data is being processed, what the data governance looks like. Um, if, for example, data is being used from cross-service uh, under the DMA, but at the same time, if this is used to feed an AI system, uh, sorry, to feed an AI system, uh, it will also be important to see if the data quality is good enough or not under the AI Act. And so uh, that's why I think that we should have at least some institutionalized exchange bec uh, between the enforcement authorities or even, you know, give it to the same enforcement authorities uh, because they're going to be checking for similar things and might be beneficial to, you know, learn from one another. And um, finally, my plea would be really to, to, um, to devise the AI Act in a way that is more granular. So we might need simply rules uh, also for non-high-risk systems, uh, such as, for example, ranking systems on Google, that where you might say, you know, it's perhaps not high risk in the sense nobody's going to die if I get a, another proposal for a climbing shoe, a climbing shoe, unless it really doesn't fit, I fall off the wall, but you know what I mean. Um, so, but we might need some rules there still. If it's opaque, it needs to be made transparent. If it's, you know, it has a high risk of discrimination, we might need uh, the non-discrimination rules of the data governance rules of the AI Act. And so uh, I think expanding the list of high risk systems and then creating subcategories where only parts of these uh, rules that are listed in Article 6 and following apply, that might be a way forward. Just like with the uh, with the um, products that are sold or marketed uh, not under the new legislative framework, which like the like uh, autonomous vehicles, which technically are considered high risk, but then Article Two Two of the AI Act says, but uh, you know none of the rules actually of the high risk uh, AI uh, obligation AI obligations apply. So there in that area, you have a high risk group that is specifically then totally exempt from all the obligations of the AI Act. And I think we could have other uh, high-risk groups which are not exempt from all the rules, but from some of the rules and where only some of the rules that make most sense would apply. And that perhaps could also be a way forward uh, for future iterations of the uh, AI Act, perhaps in the trilogue.
Philip Hacker is the Chair for Law and Ethics of the Digital Society at the European New School of Digital Studies. Thank you, Philip. Thank you so much, Luca. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evie Curie. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening. Music